listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Lyrical. Emotional. Groovy. Emily Joy Sullivan is a composer, educator, and choral director based in Northern California. Her music is animated by the spirit of song, dance, and storytelling, and often embraces vernacular traditions. Sullivan's works have been performed in New York, Chicago, Memphis, Melbourne, Vancouver, Valencia, and Cape Town, South Africa. She is currently pursuing a PhD in music theory and composition at UC Davis. Primary areas of research include music and gender, musical theater, confessional songwriting, lyricism and song forms, and creativity and pedagogy. Sullivan has also founded and directed several singing groups with a focus on helping people of various backgrounds find community, empowerment, and joy through singing. She is currently working on a musical drama retelling fairy tales from the heroine's point of view. Emily, great to meet you. Uh, and first off, uh, welcome to Adjective New Music as uh, one of Yay! the one of the newer members of the Composer Collective. Uh, we're looking forward to getting to know you through your music and and these podcasts, and hopefully have you on some of the more silly ones coming up. Um, <laughs> So we're going to look at four of your pieces uh, today and kind of talk about them. And I wanted to start out with your piece, Dangerous Curves Ahead. And Mm -hmm. uh, this is a piano trio. Um, How did this piece get started? How did it come about? Yeah, uh, this is one of my my favorites that I've created. I'm so excited to share it with y'all. And it it came about through a festival, right? The summer festival thing that that a lot of us do. Uh, It was for VIPA Festival in Valencia, Spain. I won't even attempt to pronounce (laughs) Valencia the way the locals would. Uh, But yeah, it was a a festival commission for a group called B3 Brower Trio, who are really inspired by the music of Leo Brower. I hope I'm saying that one right. Uh, And, you know, play piano trio versions of his music, but also many other composers but I was really inspired by by what I heard from their music. So I got to kind of choose that I would write for them. And I was interested in exploring kind of like unabashedly the types of music that I love and, and groove and melody uh, and lyricism mixing with something, you know, a little bit more, not jagged, but a little bit more funky. Um, and also what it meant to be like an American composer. Uh, for the first time being in a non-US context, right? right? Like I was thinking about that a little bit too, I think. What uh what if any conclusions about what it means to be an American composer did you come up with? <laughs> uh pretty much nothing. Yeah. No. Um I think it just more <laughs> played out musically of like I guess like being influenced by the blues or by, you know, the blues origin of many of our vernacular musics. That's and pop music, right? That's really kind of where I feel more most at home. And so mm-hmm. I'm always kind of navigating what that means for concert music, right? And so I was just interested in kind of exploring that, again, a little bit more unabashedly, um, more looping and layering and and not necessarily developing in this super teleological way that we're supposed to. Um, so I think that to me was being like a little bit more nakedly American, perhaps. Now you said that the the trio is named uh, for uh, Leo Brower. Did you did you you said you you liked what you heard from uh, the the 
previous recordings or performances of this trio, was it something in Leo Brower that you heard or was it other composers that they had played that you were like, yeah, I want to work with them? Yeah, no, it was more the Leo Brower stuff. I think I heard in that music a lot, both more lyricism and more groove um, than I had sometimes been accustomed to hearing at a lot of the concerts I was going to. And I think, to be honest, you know, back then, three years ago or so, that made me feel more like that it was okay to write that kind of a music mm-hmm. and and not only okay, but welcomed, at least by this particular group. So I think that especially made it seem like a good fit and a good opportunity for me to kind of unleash that, um, those elements in myself, because I saw them, I saw them in that music of Browers that they were playing. And I just found it very, not just like attractive and pleasant, but very interesting. You mentioned there were, you know, there were some uh, like the blues and pop music um, were were uh, points of departure for you. Um, and you said that you uh, feel more comfortable with that. Like that's that's where you're coming from. I mean, do you do you have like a songwriting background or 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 something like that? Yeah, yeah, I would I would say yes. But even further back than that, you know, when I was. When I was a kid, I didn't take music lessons. I was just like a big nerd and I read a lot. But my like artistic thing that I did was that I was in dance lessons since I was okay. four years old. Um, and we did do some ballet and modern, but it was mainly this. Uh, I think of it as very like United States American, like tap and jazz and get in your costumes and like, you know, make a cool formation and do these these, you know, moves all together. And, and the music that we would dance to would be. Stevie Wonder, other Motown, um, amazing Motown songs. I dressed up like a little clown and danced to tears as a clown as like a seven-year-old. So, you know, that (laughs) kind of music was, was very much in my, in my mind and heart, but also in my body. I started to realize like, oh, these, these rhythms are important to me. And, um, I've always felt like rhythm is more of a strength for me or, or just feels more natural than like really focusing on pitch. And I just really love groove. I love I just love movement. Like to me, that's very integrated with music, perhaps for that, that reason. But yeah, I didn't have like piano lessons or anything. So I was really just a dancer. And then um, eventually one day in dance class, I I was starting to get more into music and music theater. I was uh, in the musicals and I took some music theory and I would be like, I was supposed to be dancing and I would just be like trying to figure out the solfege in my head to like, I don't know, Jimmy Buffett or, or something. I was like, oh, I think I need to make a little pivot in my life. Like, I think I, I am more interested in this. Uh, but yeah, it was, I, I really only wrote songs on my guitar for a while, or I would compose into finale a little bit, but I definitely took a songwriting detour and then kind of came back to, to concert music. Um, and now I'm more exploring kind of all of those things, trying to explore them in parallel and or maybe reintegrate them in my work now. Yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, it, it from from this piece and actually some of the other pieces of yours we're going to listen to, it really doesn't seem like for you there needs to be any sort of distinction. Like that distinction mm. is not necessarily important, you know? Is that is the that fair to, between concert music and pop and how they can how they can integrate and you know, I think there there are definitely those composers out there that like, oh, okay, well, this is the place for me to do my really thorny stuff, and then over here, this is the place for me to do my like really um, 
consonant, uh, like rhythmic groove based stuff. And they like kind of separate them in their, in their life, but it doesn't necessarily seem like that's what you're doing all the time. Is that fair? Yeah, that's definitely fair. Thank you for saying that. Cause we Rob have never really met and you, we haven't talked about this. So I'm glad that you kind of like picked up on that. <laughs> that's exactly how I feel. I think it's how I've always felt. I think that I'm getting better both in terms of just like confidence and skills now of like, I'll keep using that word again, unabashedly or unapologetically, just like mm-hmm. not even reintegrating them, but just like letting them be integrated the, the way they are naturally to me. But I think even earlier on, like I still was never really writing things that didn't either have lyricism or groove. Like I, mm-hmm. I don't know if I even like really tried to force myself, but to the degree that I did, it didn't work. Um, <laughs> so even in earlier pieces, I think there are some of those elements present um, in the concert music for sure. I don't think I ever had them in separate boxes. I just think I'm finding ways to like still hopefully be somewhat more innovative or just experimental or push myself further while still being integrated in both. Mm -hmm. Can you talk, I mean, this, this piece uh, starts with some like really high energy stuff. There's actually a very noticeable like 12 bar blues progression in the first section Mm -hmm. of the piece. Um, but then can you talk about the middle portion of the work? I mean, there's, there's a really stark contrast both in texture and in harmony. So how does, how does that middle section function musically and, or possibly narratively in the work? Yeah. Great question. This is where the, the road sign kind of plays more of a, of a role in how the piece evolved, like as a form. Uh Um, so I think of. I can't remember at what point I started thinking of this, or maybe it's only post hoc, but there's kind of three different sections. You're right that that's like the most stark contrast. The first two are kind of linked, but I started to think of dangerous curves and ahead, um, not just as a unity, but focusing on one of those at a time. So the opening section, you know, high energy, like you said, maybe not exactly dangerous, but more the physicality of, of yeah. these, these curves on a road. Right. Um, and then, and then the curves portion is kind of a more, I think, sensual melody. And then the idea of a head um, for the for that middle section you're asking about inspired me to be more expansive and a little less sure, I guess, a little less confident in the sounds, a little less declarative and more questioning is another way to put it. Um, another thing I think about a lot is I really enjoy fourths and fifths. Um, as sonorities, as, as chords, as intervals, as scale degrees. Um, and that obviously can have more pop implications. Uh, but in this case, I was really more layering them, you know, vertically to create these sonorities that have a very different, different effect as a character. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just formally, I wanted some contrast, but also narratively, as you said, I I kind of am always thinking narratively and I wanted to create a, a section in the piece that would speak more to actually the, the danger or fear even that we can have it in our uncertainty of what's ahead of us. Mm-hmm. I wanted to explore that kind of um, a little bit more, maybe not ominous, but definitely less, uh, less cheerful or plucky side of this yeah. road sign. I think that um, the piano trio, it's, it's like definitely on my uh, wish list of ensembles to write for, uh, because I just think it's, I, I think it's very cool. But I also, you know, it it has a certain like 
I feel like it's a hard ensemble to write for, you know, um, just because you you're kind of negotiating between like duo trio uh like that kind of solo and piano sound versus string duo sound versus you know who's who's in who's in control right now or or who's commanding the texture and um the other thing is because you only have three like everyone's playing all the time you know so it's mm. it it i think it's one of those ensembles that has some challenges you know you talked about listening to the um i i think uh musically to the uh to the leo brower uh pieces but were there any were there any other things where you like i want to i i'm listening to this piece to get like the sound of the ensemble or like how, different ways to treat the ensemble you know I'm not sure I remember. <laughs> I was also <laughs> writing a woodwind quintet at, at, at that time. And I remember distinctly like thinking, oh gosh, I need to like know what other people have done with this because talk about an ensemble people say is, mm-hmm. is hard to write for. I like, ah, yeah. I had it in my head. I really needed to to prepare. And I don't know if I felt the same way about piano trio or if I felt okay. uh, a little bit more comfortable there than with winds. I don't know that I would have thought that at the time, but now looking back, I'm like, oh, this was a bit of a better fit for me as an ensemble than, than some other ones. And mm-hmm. maybe it's because coming from that songwriting background or like art song or things that are solo or duos feeling more comfortable with that and or with writing for the voice, you know, three to me doesn't seem like, Oh, there's only three. It's kind of like, Oh, that's oh, a cool number. Three. You know, like, <laughs> Oh, I don't have to manage like what the heck, like orchestra or like almost worse, like some nine piece chamber thing. It's like, Oh, what does that even mean? To me, I was just like, oh, I'll let each of these have a turn, some more than others. I mean, I think if I were going to write for Piano Trio now, I would I would change it up even more in these different configurations, mm-hmm. like you're saying. But I think I was just really excited to be like, hmm, I'm going to give this person the melody and I'm going to do like the cool rock out stuff on piano that's kind of, I don't know, Gershwin influenced. And I'm just going to trust my own ear, yeah. honestly. Awesome. Well, let's listen to it now. So this is Dangerous Curves Ahead, performed by B3 Brower Trio. Thank you. 
about uh you you sent me an art song called momo dat um what what is this song about like the uh the text and 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 everything going on behind it yeah this uh is a setting of a poem by eve mcgregor and i met her and worked with her for a program called art song lab this was in 2016 it was kind of my first outside of school Mm. um opportunity of that sort and it's a really great program i really recommend it and they're just really focused on making you know helping people make more art songs and better art songs and and promoting those and so she and i were were paired up and i just really fell in love with this poem of hers that uh she wrote for a wedding i think she said it was her cousin's wedding and i just i loved that in the poem there was such a combination of like the sacred and profane Mm. and if, if you have a partner and you're, you know, and you've been together for a while, you, you know, that that's, in my opinion, at least in my experience, that is kind of part of it is not that just that both of those are present, but sometimes, uh, they're present at the same time, you know, and that it's the little things or even the seemingly silly things that can be some of the most sacred and most special. So I think I really saw that in her poem, um, and just love the way that she played with words and, uh, it just really felt like a good fit for me. So uh, I really enjoyed getting to set that and, and collaborate with her uh, in that. And so, yeah, the, the title of it is is based on something real from, from her life where a young, the young child of this couple uh, pointed to Pi and said, mo, mo, dat, like more, more of that. And <laughs> that kind of encapsulates this whole spirit of like, if you're choosing to commit to someone, in this case for, for their life, um, more and more of that 
I, I want more of this. I want this, you know, forever in that case. And I just thought, you know, again, kind of not the profane, maybe that's too uh, strong of a word, but, but the sacred and the, and the quotidian, I don't know, some, some, some fancy pretentious word like that, you know, for basically just the everyday, that little moment, um, everything is kind of wrapped up in that. And I just, I just really, I still love this poem. I love it as a poem. Um, and I'm, I'm fond of the song that we created as well. Man, I want more pie. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, you're Food. you're a vocalist yourself, correct? Yes. Yeah. I will say an un, unequivocal yes to that. Sure. <laughs> Is that was that like your instrument in undergrad, or did you study something else? I I was a composition and musicology. So yeah, the, okay. the reason why I, I attempted to say unequivocally yes and was really being tongue-in-cheek about that is that whenever people ask me what my instrument is, I'm like, ah, like I don't really have one. Um, <laughs> that's fr- kind of, yeah. that's not why I'm a composer, but it's, you know, my main thing is not, um, I wouldn't even say it's not performing. It's not like focusing on the technique of executing like other people's music. Right. Um, my my really good friend uh, Steve Bachicha, he you know when when that question came up, you know he and I were always out in public together. We were pretty inseparable um, while we were doing our doctorate together. And you know you meet people from all all, all different backgrounds. And I was like, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm I'm a musician. Oh, what's your instrument? You know and. As composers, we never have a good answer for that. So he came up with, oh, I play the pencil. Like, Ooh, I like that. Yeah. I play finale. I mean, but that's the <laughs> thing. It's like many composers do have like a a more understandable answer for that, right? Like a lot of people do come to composition after or from or still um, playing, you know, a capital I instrument, you know, or playing yeah. in a, an orchestra or even if they're a vocalist, you know, uh, maybe studying voice in undergrad. And that just wasn't, um, that wasn't my experience, but, um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm coming to terms with that and I am actually coming back to identifying more as a vocalist, but it it has always been more in a choir or in a musical or in, in songwriting, which definitely still counts, but it's just funny. The, uh, the associations or the baggage you might have, or you might worry the other person has, it's like, what are they going to think it means if I say I'm a vocalist? Do they think I can just like, you know, do some George Crumb piece right now, like, or no. like, or like step step into a Wagner opera or something like that. Yeah, yeah. There's so many associations, right? Of like, especially like, yeah, females in opera and and yeah, yeah. So I I still don't know what to say. I should by now have like kind of an elevator pitch uh, version for situations like that, but I don't. I just try to be kind of real and be like, yeah, I use my voice, but. Uh, yeah, don't expect me to do, to do Wagner or Crumb or, or right. even Joni Mitchell, you know, like. Right. <laughs> so, uh. pretty rad. So when you, you, you said you were kind of paired together with this, with this poet, but I'm assuming there have been other times, uh, when you've like gone searching for text, uh, for, mm. for songs and everything. And I was gonna, I was wondering like, when, when you're looking for text, like, what do you look for? Are there certain qualities that a text kind of has that draws you to it? Like, for instance, for me, um, when I'm looking for text to set, um, the text has to have like some bite to it. 
You know, it has to have kind of sharp edges and be more observational or dis- or like descriptive as opposed to kind of inward looking, I guess. So in that vein, like what qualities are you generally searching for when you're when you're looking for a text? That's really interesting. Yeah, I think I'm looking for kind of the opposite to mm. what you're looking for. Um so thanks for including your example, because that helps me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, you know, for me, music is emotional. And I know it's not for everybody, and that's cool. Everybody has their own ap- approach. But mm-hmm. I've been recently just realizing that that's, you know, that's what it is for me. Yeah. And words can really do that, too. Um, so I think I'm usually looking for something that is really interior and um, somehow, like, I want to say like nakedly emotional, but not corny, right? Like mm-hmm. walking that line, oof, really tough and tough if you try to write your own words too, which is something that I'm I'm more interested in now. But when I am looking for somebody else's um, words that I want to set, yeah, I want this feeling of like emotional veracity. Mm. Um, if it's a choir piece, that's different. Like it's a little weird to have a bunch of people sing I. So that's different. Right, yeah. Um, like I just wrote a piece, a piece for treble choir, and it's um, it kind of avoids using either I or we, um, but it's just more kind of what you're saying of observational, but it's uh, it still has this kind of emotional element. It's about it's like a tree asking for a, a woodcutter to chop away its shadow. It's like really beautiful. So it still is in that same vein. It's just like managing to avoid, avoid um, too much. I, mm-hmm. there is some my, I think. Uh, but I guess what's in common about all that is like also really vivid images, like using the words to, to create like metaphors and images and things that seem to pair well with, with music and invite music. Yeah. So for instance, I just finished an art song cycle. That's some, poems by Amy Lowell. And I think those are my favorite things. Well, I don't want to pick favorites, but that's been easier to set than many <laughs> art songs I've attempted and abandoned because she's actually like from a, a, a group or movement called Imagism, where it's like letting go of rhyme and the sing-songy sort of a thing, um, but still having these very, to me, accessible kind of images created about very concrete things like the senses. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, to me, really invites music and doesn't feel like so regular and metric that it more invites lyrics, which to me is different writing something with right. lyrics compared to setting a poem. It is actually different. You know, what you brought up about the whole uh the the choir thing and like certain texts are better for solo voices as opposed to choir or something i have to i have to say i've only ever um i've only ever set for solo voices and i'm like i feel myself being drawn to to choir um at at ohio university where i'm at we have like um, the, the choir directors we have for, you know, the, um, the like all voices choir. And then there's another choir director for the treble voices choir. And like, they're just the coolest people and I really want to work with them. So Mm. like before this, I've never really had a, uh, a draw to write for choir, but I'm starting to think about like, Hmm, what, what could I do for that? Considering I've never done it before. And I think one of my main hangups was like, how do you set text? Like, what does the text have to be? It, you're you're right. It has to be. It 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 can't be 
something that is from that like singular point of view. Uh, because it would be weird mm. for like 40 people to, I did this, you know, like, so that's, that's, <laughs> that's really interesting. That kind of gets me thinking. And the other problem, the other problem is, is that I have been, I've been very faithful to um, the poet that I work with. Um, we've done like, she and I have done like seven or eight things together because she has all of those qualities that I look for, you know um in in poetry but i don't know i don't know that's that's an interesting <laughs> thought i i i, I want to like step back a little bit and say i don't want to say it never works like i'm already sure. like, oh, i could probably think of examples but i think i think it's just good to be to be thinking about you know if it's like a really intimate one-on-one love poem like you could set it and it might be fine but yeah it's more thinking about too like what is what are the unique strengths of the choir? What does it mean to like be in a group with other people singing? What does it mean to watch that? I think in some ways it's like a really um, not untapped resource. What am I trying to say? I I want like more composers to be like paired with choirs and I want there to be more like cross pollination there. I think there Mm. is a lot already, but I don't think it's the thing that we're most like encouraged or able to write in in programs and academic programs because mm-hmm. it's like harder to wrangle up a ton of people to sing and like sure. the already has their own stuff that they're doing in most programs so it's interesting that i think there's a ton of demand and like hunger for new choral music and it's just like so powerful and such a like universal I hesitate to call anything universal but to me it's like it's it's close to it you know it's a very human um i think desire to sing and to sing with other people. It's, yeah. it's, it's so pleasurable. And if we can create new music for that, I, I think it's really, really great, but it's a little tricky to like do the, the matchmaking on it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, let's listen to this. So who are we going to hear on this uh, recording? The performers. This is Lynn McMurtry, uh, contralto and Alison D'Amato on piano. And they actually, uh, Alison teaches at, uh, actually, I forget where Allison teaches. I'm so sorry, Allison, if you're listening. <laughs> but Lynn teaches voice at Fredonia. <laughs> I think I think she might be like at Eastman and UB or something like very impressive. I just don't want to say the wrong thing. <laughs> uh, but the reason why I even bring it up is that I got assigned to them at, at this art song lab. And I didn't even know that they actually that that uh, Lynn at least teaches at SUNY Fredonia where I was attending at the time. So it was a very funny coincidence. That's the only reason why I bring it up. And then it, it went on to be just really nice to connect with them. And I actually studied with Lynn for a little while on voice. So it's just very like personal and tender to me, this one. Is it Allison? Um, doesn't she play with uh, Deco, who is also in Fredonia? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. There's like a whole, yeah, it's it's a whole little little network out there. I yeah. love Deco Ensemble. They're great. They're, yeah. they're, I'm sure they play together. I know that they're friends. I know that like... I feel they, like they they uh, live like, like really close to each other. Like they might like live in this in the same like duplex or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, they're neighbors. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, uh, this is Momo Dat. Here, we are all 
Let's talk about your solo violin piece called Question. Um, why is it called Question? <laughs> nice question. Wouldn't you like uh, to know? <laughs> <laughs> well, so I mentioned earlier um, my 
I don't know, affinity or proclivity for uh, portal and quintal sonorities. And this was also um, affiliated with a, a summer festival. I did a lot of those a couple of years ago. I was like hungry to see what was out there yeah. uh, and eager to rack up credit card debt. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, this is actually, I, I, it wasn't performed as part of a festival, but it was, um, it's a, I think she calls it an intensive, the Zeman summer intensive I went to in 2017. And I, just to like give a, a shameless plug, it's a really great program. I did so much composing there. I, I really felt like it was a great and nurturing environment. Um, and it, this piece was generated out of an exercise that she gave us. And I don't even remember the exact prompt, to be honest, but um, I was just really exploring these these fourths and fifths, which I think I thought was very uh, natural and idiomatic to a string instrument and turned <laughs> out to be a little less so than I thought, but I made it work. Uh, I wanted these open, you know, open strings, open sonorities, lots of lots of fifths, especially. And as I was playing with that, I, I just kind of responded to the natural character that was that was arising that to me seemed very um Maybe not exactly striving, but just, yeah, questioning, searching. Maybe that's the best word. And uh, I think the prompt now that I think about it was to do with meter and with 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 challenging falling into a downbeat in the grid always. Um, and so as that evolved, I was interested in playing with with the meter um, later in the in the piece, I think like a minute or so in and letting it be somewhat inspired by dance and have some kind of emergent groove, but less just you know, falling into a four, four square grid than I was used to. Yeah. And it seemed like a good challenge to take music that pitch wise seemed very not dancey to me, <laughs> uh, kind of more introspective and angular, uh, and to, to take that and make sort of a dance. And as I was playing with that and kind of thinking about the overall narrative of the piece, which is usually pretty important to me, um, kind of made me think about body-mind dualism and what we're doing when we question. It's, it's really important. It's really like part of being human, but it can create kind of a split in us too, right? Where we, we don't just feel like in flow or one with ourselves. Um, and for me, a lot of that would be about embodiment and dance. So that's kind of how that all came together. Of course, in, in, in some order and time span that I can't remember, it's always mm -hmm. like a mystery even to ourselves, the process, right? But eventually that kind of coalesced into into what the piece is about for me. Earlier, you said that, you know, rhythm just come kind of comes naturally for you because, uh, well, maybe not solely because, but perhaps as a consequence of your dance background, when you're writing something like this, are you, are you kind of, are you thinking about dance? Are you thinking about gesture? Is that kind of informing how, musical gestures get written or is that just kind of separate that at least at the time was separate I'm thinking about it more now um but no I think at the time I don't know if I was even aware at the time how my dance background was was maybe in influencing it like mm -hmm. I think that might be me post hoc realizing that yeah um and it definitely wasn't like, oh, this is like when I do this sort of a gesture and dance. Because I also hadn't danced for like probably a decade at the point yeah. when I wrote this, you know, other than in the clubs, obviously. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's not that exact. And I think, I guess the way I think it it has under the surface always by default influenced my writing is, is a double-edged sword, actually. It's a, a pro and a con of like, okay, groovy rhythms and things that fit to some sort of a, a grid or a groove 
come naturally to me and I don't get it when somebody can't like, you know, clap on two and four instead of one and three or like get a syncopated rhythm. I'm like, this is just like natural to me already. Right. Like, why are you so good at singing a tritone? And I can't, <laughs> but like <laughs> I can do this rhythm thing and you can't, but it's very tied to like a certain type of a background. So getting off the grid of that and doing something in totally free rhythm or something that's very rhythmic, but in a different way that isn't about groove or, you know, pulse and meter, I would definitely not call that a strength. Right. So it just, it, it it depends on the context. Mm. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that I, I think you and I are kind of similar because um, I'm I'm coming from a percussion background. That was my main instrument for a long time, and not I mean not to mention uh, playing guitar in a rock band and you know all those things. But for me, rhythm is very natural, and it's actually one of the I, I was I, I'm I'm giving a uh, a lecture later in the week and I I was I don't know why because I could easily just like hey these are my pieces this is how I did it you know do something like that but for for whatever reason I started thinking about like well is there something like that I'm doing I mean I think I've been doing this for like 20 years now so like could I start looking back is that too presumptuous I'm I'm only 36 <laughs> Like there's still a lot of time to be thinking about to continue developing. And, and I, I feel like that's important, but I was starting to think about like, what are some threads in my own life? And one of the threads that I wrote down as I was thinking about this is like pitch and harmony does not come easily to me. Um, yeah. So I have to, I focus on it a lot in my, in my compositional work Whereas rhythm, proportion, uh, timbre, these things are just intuitive to me, you know? So yeah. it's like, those are the things that I, you know, I can write rhythm all day long and um, in either some kind of, uh, you know, either in some kind of groove or, or uh, started in a groove and then break that or, or, or whatever, or, you know, just, uh, just kind of free stuff, but it's always like pitch and harmony that I find to be, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's something that it just does not come that easy. So as a consequence of that, it's what I focus on so much. Um, is that, do do you have kind of that same experience? Um, not exactly, but what you're saying is totally resonating in a different way. I mean, huh. first to be a little glib, it's like, so so you kind of are fitting the stereotype of a, of a percussionist then, right? It's oh, like, totally. Oh, totally. Good at rhythm and totally. not. <laughs> and, and whenever people have this this stereotype about singers is bad at rhythm, I like at first I like really didn't get it. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, why? Uh, because... I don't know how to play any instrument but sing and a little piano and guitar, but my rhythm's great. Like, what are you talking about? So maybe really my instrument is like tap dance grade, you know, intermediate, you know? Uh, <laughs> so it's just funny. Like, I am like bucking that stereotype proudly, yeah. I guess. Um, but I think for me, where what you're talking about of like purposely bringing attention to something because you think it's not as natural was actually form. Like when I was... Got it. Yeah. Still now, but certainly when I was younger, it was like, oh, I feel like I can create these things, these like bits of music that I like, uh, but I don't know how they should go together. And and again, not having like played uh, much classical music, but from this this choir and 
and musical theater background, it's like, okay, well, I can put it together like that. Like I can make a song that makes sense, but how is a piece different from a song? Like what are other forms? And so I think I really was kind of like anal about that, to be honest. I was like, oh God, everything has to like make sense and has to have some sort of a form. And um, I think there's also a a thing of like wanting to be able to explain your music too, especially if maybe Mm -hmm. certain parts of it are more accessible or simple. I mean, there's like, there's like no perfect word for it, right? That doesn't feel uh, just so laden with baggage, but I Mm -hmm. think there there is kind of a need to like prove in some rational way, especially when you're in these, these presentation situations, I have often Mm -hmm. felt that. And so that led me to really focus on, on form a lot. And now I'm working on like actually backpedaling that of like not over rationalizing something that doesn't have to be inherently rational and, and that the form doesn't have to be neat or balanced or narrative. I mean, I still think I prefer that and it's a value for me, but what would it be to just like, what would it be like to just embrace a piece with just a bunch of miniatures and like it's I couldn't really tell you exactly why they go together like that but but to just do it like that's my so it's like kind of a a doubling back of 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 trying to overcorrect for it and now like trying to undercorrect again like this yeah. pendulum swing somehow ending up centered again at a normal relaxed position yeah and that um I, I totally get what you're saying. Like my my ideas about form are, uh, you know, it form is derived from the material. But I also have like I have two kind of competing ideas. Like there's there's of course the like the top down approach where you decide all the things before you even start writing and you have that plan and you know and and it's like oh, okay well it's going to be this long and have this many sections and they're going to go together like this and they're going to be in this proportion i really love doing that stuff that kind of pre-composition but also i am a big proponent of the form is derived from the material so it's like that bottom up approach where you just start with the material and and it kind of spins out naturally so i think it was you know uh, reading a book about electronic music by Curtis Rhodes, where he talked about like, yeah, you can, those are not mutually exclusive. You can do both of those simultaneously. Mm. And that's kind of where I'm coming from with form. But you know, that what my, my favorite thing about, uh, about pieces that I hear, it's like, wow, that was an outlier, you know? that didn't seem to fit or something that doesn't, that isn't packaged nicely into the like ABA or, or Rondo or, or, or whatever uh, box that seems to be going on. And it's those like thwarting of, of expectations. Like when something is kind of in effect, like, Oh, I hear this, you know, I kind of get what's going on. And then you get that, like, Whoa, that came out of left field. That's amazing. You know, so I think having that like fluidity and flexibility with uh, with form is just like so important, and it allows you to yeah. like to have like you were saying to kind of come from that more relaxed place. Is like, okay, I'm going to do this. I don't necessarily need to explain it. Definitely, yeah, and I think some of what we're talking about here too is like about intuition versus other ways of of knowing and creating, right? So. Yeah. Um, just that somehow the, the form can feel right and maybe even balanced or symmetrical or whatever, but, but that maybe even that doesn't always come from pre-planning, but from some intuitive sense that it's just right. And that, that that's okay. Again, it's, 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 
it's hard to explain, right? I mean, I could make a whole soapbox gendered point here about, you know, the types of, of knowing that we value. Um, but to me, that's really implicated here of like, intuition is a way of knowing. It's just, you know, it's, it feels more underground, more subconscious, right? But mm-hmm. you kind of know when something feels right to you, uh, at least some of the time. So I'm kind of just letting myself embrace that more and not feel like that's not that's not true because it's not, you know, something I can show you on a piece of graph paper. Right. That, what you just said about like, you know, knowing because it feels right, you know, that is just like, I think, I think especially when we're younger composers, we want to have that almost, I mean, I, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but like for me, at least I wanted to have that kind of almost like science behind it. You know, like I wanted to have something that I could definitively say it is this way because of this. And um, the old as I get older, I just realize like, well, you can start from that place. But at the end of the day, like I have to listen to it. And man, if my if that rhythmic grid that I set up like this, this scheme, it just doesn't work, then it just doesn't work. And you gotta you gotta go to where the music is, and it has to feel right. I tell I tell that to my students like all the time. Like it just it, like it has to feel right. Otherwise, like you could all the academic rigor in the world isn't going to uh, apologize or or somehow uh, it isn't going to replace this feeling that. You could have pushed it a little bit further there or something like that. Yes. Yeah. And it actually makes me think another thing I could maybe get soapboxy about is, is just um, like the role of the software that we use. Oh God. If we use yes. it notation. Right. So like that was like my, that was like my bridge to having this life at all. Like I couldn't compose something on the piano really, but I could play around in finale, you know, play yeah. around. Um, and eventually that became, you know, something much more. But I think there's a lot of people who worry about it as a crutch. And I don't think that there's nothing valid to that, right? Like it would be great to be able to like physically make my music myself. And I'm working on that right now, like working with my own voice and making it more concrete. But on the other hand, if we care about having something at least close to the actual physical experience in time and evaluating it, as you just said, so that we can tell like, Hmm, does that feel right? Does that need more time? Does it sound how I want? Like, unless you magically have the money to have your woodwind quintet, like with you playing it every (laughs) moment, like, sorry, finale's playback is like the best facsimile of that. So maybe it's a matter of like where in the process you place it, right? Like, I think it's still good to, to, you know, at least try writing by hand. I'm working on that right now. Uh, But I do think like that finale is a really great tool for, for that or Sibelius or Dorico or whatever you want to do. Staff whatever, cat. whatever. Uh, not brand specific. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, but it's just funny. As you said that, it's like, oh yeah, how would you do that? Otherwise you would just like hear it in your mind in theory. But like, I don't know. I will admit that I cannot do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. Like, uh, I, I am often a tiny bit suspicious of people who are like, oh, I just hear everything in my head. Maybe they do. But for me, that <laughs> seems uh, like a very tall order. Um, I think you're right. Like where you place 
the where you place it in the process. Um, typically, I'm doing most things by hand, unless it is a very rhythmic, like kind of very rhythmic, kind of on the grid type of piece. Mm-hmm. And in that case, I'm just like, no, this is going to take forever for me to write it by hand. And I will do all of this work, put it into Sibelius, I'm a Sibelius user, um, put it into <laughs> Sibelius and realize, oh, that doesn't feel right. You know? So it's like, I, I, the, I, one of my, actually, the, one of the pieces I wrote for, um, well, not one of the piece I wrote for uh, Deco Ensemble recently, like some of them were totally written by hand. And my the first movement, I wrote the first like pickup to the first measure, and then just wrote on the score. Just finish this in Sibelius. Like, there's no <laughs> way I'm gonna write all of this like really nitpicky rhythm stuff that has to feel right on paper, and then get it into the computer and realize, oh, I still have so much work to do on this. So where it comes in the process right. is important. Yeah, Man, and I think depending on the exact piece, like uh, I think what's been helpful in the last year or two talking about this with various teachers out here in Davis is, is the idea of using it for what we're talking about, like for pacing for that type of feedback and not like as a timbral replacement. Um, I will acknowledge like that's a, that's like not great because it's, it's depending on the program, a decent or like totally crappy approximation. And that has gotten me into trouble of being like, Oh, this sounds really good in here in, you know, whatever program and not knowing you know, enough about the instrument or having listened Mm. to a ton of repertoire. um, I do think that that can, can lead someone astray. So now that piece is just like a piece for staff pad program. It's not for actual players (laughs) (laughs) because there's like so much freaking reverb on their playback. I was like, this sounds amazing. (laughs) And then in real life, I'm like, Oh, that's not actually what a clarinet wants to do. So (laughs) it's good for us to be able to look honestly, you know, looking back at like, Hmm, there's a time and place for everything. And, yeah. and now with our students, we can we can show them, you know, a little bit more of the way. Well, well, let's let's hear this solo violin piece called Question. So who are we going to hear on this recording? This is Kaylee Accord. So this is. And I said that like there's more to say after I didn't cadence <laughs> down. This is Kaylee Accord. <laughs> All right. This is Question for solo violin.
Okay. Well, let's let's talk about the last piece you sent me. Um, this is called Bedroom Song, and then on the uh, on the on the sound file it said from earrings. So, what is earrings, and how does Bedroom <laughs> Song come from it? Yeah, yeah. So this one has a lot of backstory. This is much more recent. This just uh, okay. digitally premiered about a month ago. So earrings is a new short musical uh, that I wrote in collaboration with Mangaya Rumagam, um, or rather she wrote the the story first and then we collaborated to make it into a musical drama. Um, and given pandemic, there was all sorts of interesting things that happened there, as you can imagine. Um, we started it over a year ago and then were, were brought abruptly to a, a halt. Yeah. Um, but we, we picked it back up. And so this song is one of three, four, three and a half songs um, in what is essentially a musical, not an opera, just in the sense that there's songs and scenes. Um, but musically, it was very important to me to, to pull from lots of different, you know, experiences and, and styles, or at least from two different ones, you know, musical theater as I know it from Sondheim and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some some new music-y stuff. And then actually also a lot of of pop. I was listening to things from the early 90s to try to get a feel um, for the world that I wanted to create. Um, but the story is basically about a, a young woman getting her period for the first time and um, a lot of just a lot of different really interesting, really real emotional stuff around that between her and her mom and negotiating traditions uh, because they're Indian American and trying to figure out what to what to take and what to leave. It was just a really rich story. Um, and I was really, really grateful to be paired with, with Mangai to, to bring it to life on stage or as it ended up being on screen. And I just felt that those themes were, were both so specific and authentic, but also in a way really universal. And mm-hmm. so this, this song happens at a moment where this 12, 12-ish year old girl is, is just really frustrated with, with her mom and with what she sees a violation of, of her privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually I hope to give it kind of a better name than bedroom song, but it's her, you know, coming back into her bedroom alone, finally alone and not having to, uh, navigate all these different social, um, pressures and to just get to kind of come to terms with it on her own or try mm-hmm. to. So that's the the narrative background for this song when we, when we enter it. What were the early nineties, uh, sources that you were <laughs> listening to? I'm, I'm very curious now. It was a lot of, it started out as a lot of Janet Jackson. It started out as me just trying to set like, okay, if this is the early nineties, I don't want it to be like super clear or super representational, but I wanted it to be, you know, in my mind at the time. Mm-hmm. And I just love Janet Jackson. And when I hear some of those, um, like rhythm nation and the first couple albums after that, like, it just makes me think of that time. And I was alive at that time. I was pretty young. I wasn't as old as this character, but uh, it really evoked that for me. And I also just really liked it. So I started digging into that and then quickly discovered with the help of some some teachers, like, ooh, th- that involves actually like a lot of drum machines and synthesizing and stuff that I that I don't understand. Uh, so it made its way in and as a slight influence, but I ended up kind of pivoting more to Tori Amos and uh, Pearl Jam, actually, as I thought more about emotionally what's appropriate, given given what moment in the story it is, I thought about the idea of like becoming a teenager and maybe getting to to acknowledge your anger or express anger for the first time um, 
you know, especially as a woman, Tori Amos, like I made a connection there for sure. Mm-hmm. And Pearl Jam, I just love and just feel so iconically early 90s to me. Um, and, and it seemed like something that I could channel a little bit better without electronics that I could play with, um, with, with rat pedal on viola. Uh, again, my teachers were super helpful with, with that. And yeah, so it became this kind of amalgam of, of those three influences, but then still mainly just a lot of my own, uh, musical theater background, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, there were a couple moments in there that I thought were just really poignant. Um, like, uh, does dad know? And yeah. then also at the very end that that uh, kind of plea like no more changes. Oh my God. Like <laughs> we we have all felt that at one point um, in our lives. And yeah, I think the way you you treated those moments was really was really, really nice. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That means a lot. Those are the two yeah, those are the two main moments for me as well. Yeah. And I really wanted to, you know, one thing I will say about like musical drama in general is like, at least in the most mainstream musical theater things, and maybe in, in traditional arias as well, there's often like kind of a feeling that the song is static or like maybe they come to a change in the lyrics, but like the repetition of the A or the B is like still pretty much the same, right? And so whether I'm writing something more in opera world or musical theater world, I'm usually interested in making it more like a pretty far trajectory, like emotionally for the character through the song. Like, I think Mm -hmm. that they need to come to a decision or something. Otherwise, like, why, you know, why do we care? (laughs) And why couldn't it just be, you know, spoken, I guess. I mean, that's a bigger conversation of like how we use music and drama. And I think there's lots of different options, but, but for me, I always think it's more interesting if, if the character can go through a change, but then it's also a lot to put on, on the music too, of like, how does the music change then? And so it was kind of a cool challenge to try to take her pretty quickly from, from basically anger, which is not exactly the emotion I feel most comfortable in, but trying to, to channel that and then really get to the end, like, oh, this is really about feeling vulnerable, feeling scared, feeling hurt, feeling confused, like all those kind of softer, more underbelly emotions mm-hmm. um, in only about, you know, three minutes. Yeah. It's it's a challenge. <laughs> well, and what you just said there, you're, you're kind of, um, it seems like you're, that traditional role of aria versus recitative in opera you're kind of mm. combining those because i i feel like traditionally like recitative is where all the action happens and aria is where all the feelings happen you know it's like let let's let's sing and let's do this thing in recitative and then when you get to the arias like this is how i feel about it you know so yep. in trying to combine those yeah yeah that's that's interesting well i think you pulled it off so Oh, thank you. Yeah. And actually, as you're saying, I feel like I'm getting more, more clarity. Yeah, I guess I am combining it because I think in real life, like I do think that uh, the, the most emotional moments are the ones that should have music if you're not setting all of it. Um, again, should, that's what I would tell myself. It's not a moral judgment, but to me, yes, music is emotional. So that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. But psychologically speaking in real life, emotions motivate and, and lead yeah. us to action. And so I do, I guess integration is kind of a theme coming up here. Like I do see those as as intrinsically connected and that both would be present in the song. And actually for this musical, how I decided what to what to make songs, how to song spot it, you know, was moments that were especially emotional, but also moments that were interior for this character, Mm. because I was interested in the idea of singing being something uh, vulnerable 
and initially something she would only do um, alone. Um, so I just I think it's so interesting music drama and thinking about like what it means to sing to have a character sing. I think there's so many different ways that it can can go. Um, we'll never like run out of of, of ideas or yeah. fun in exploring it. Well, awesome. So let's listen to this. So who who are we going to hear on the recording? That's it's uh, voice, piano, and viola. You said. Yeah. So voice is Sarah Miller, viola is Kurt Rohde, and piano is Kate Campbell. This is Bedroom Song from Earrings. She shouldn't have told them. She shouldn't have said anything. I can't believe she told them. Can't believe they know everything. What an embarrassing moment for us to commemorate Mark of a woman, I'm still just a girl You wouldn't call me an adult mom Would you? All I wanted was some quiet time alone One measly afternoon without having to go to school Worried I'd make a stain, thinking I'd be found out And wouldn't make it through the day All right, we've come to the last question that I always ask all the composers and artists that come on the podcast. How did you find music as the thing that you wanted to pursue for your life? 
Well, I can't pick just one definitive moment, but I can pick one uh, of, of, of several, I suppose. Uh, when I was, I guess, a junior and a senior in high school, I was, uh, my, my parents rediscovered some, some CDs. I guess they hadn't been CDs. I guess they bought on CD things they had owned on album sure. uh, <laughs> 10 years before or so. And uh, one was 10,000 Maniacs and another was a Joni Mitchell album, Court and Spark, not the best known, but a really cool album. And I was just really like, emotionally so moved by these albums and and realized that I had heard them you know distantly in, in my early childhood and it was really really important to me and I was really moved and curious at at the emotional power that they had and so I think that that combined with starting to explore a little bit more listening to classical music mainly Tchaikovsky um, and again a similar thing of like wow I feel like I can see the scene he's trying to create there's so much character here so much um, emotion. It's so alive. I feel like it's inside me just through these like vibrations in the air. It really like piqued my interest and, and calcified, uh, what had been a burgeoning interest in musical theater more so to be like, Oh wait, what if I could make those sounds? What if I could make something like it's kind of big shoes to fill like Tchaikovsky or like Joni Mitchell. Uh, and I guess I, I never totally gave that up and here we are. Favorite Tchaikovsky piece, go. <laughs> the Andante Cantabile, that's the second movement from his string quartet. Really? Okay. Tchaikovsky. That was just my... <laughs> Tchaikovsky was my, was my first love as well, so... Really? Yeah. We have so much in common, Rob. That's so cool. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's still my favorite. I would have to think about it more, but that's the gut reaction, and that's the one in this anecdote I'm sharing with you. That's the one that that really moved me actually. And it's, mm. it's interesting because like nobody freaking cares about that string quartet. Nobody writes about it. Like you don't think of him as string quartet guy, mm -mm. but this, this slow movement, I just really love the harmonies. I love the melody. It just spoke to me, yeah. you know, again, it's like, who can explain why it's just intuitive. I it just was loved it. for me. It was at first it was the, because I was playing it in like a um, youth orchestra, it was the 1812 overture. And then when I, mm. when I went further down the line with him, first movement of the um sixth string or sixth uh symphony there's oh, that yeah. there's that yeah. flute melody like i don't know a third of the way in and oh my god it just gets me like yeah yeah it's so good yeah no that symphony is amazing yeah. definitely yeah it's interesting to think about what we we love almost just because we came to it early enough. Right. Um, yeah. And it holds a personal spot in our heart. And I don't think that that should be discounted. I think that that is real, but it's just a little different than when you come to something later. Um, and having studied music as we have, it's just different. Mm. You can appreciate it in a different way. And I could maybe even say in some way, like it's, I wouldn't say better, but just like more sophisticated or whatever. But that, those older pieces like always have that spot in your heart, whether it's, you know, Janet yeah. Jackson or Tchaikovsky or oh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, uh, before we go, uh, can you tell people where they can find more of your music, connect with you online, anything like that? Yeah, I'm on Facebook, Emily Joy Sullivan. I better be the only one. Uh, I am. <laughs> and on SoundCloud, Emily Joy Sullivan. And emilyjoysullivan.com. Going to be up very, very soon. I'm saying it now on the air so it's out there i'm gonna push publish on that that website uh i do not use twitter i'm a little scared uh <laughs> it's okay. it's, but it's yeah scary. facebook for sure 
Cool. Well, Emily, thank you so much for doing this and welcome to Adjective. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about Adjective New Music or Lexical Tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com. Thank you.